Hello and welcome to this edition of Taxpayer Talk. I'm your host, Peter Williams, a board member of the New Zealand Taxpayers Union, fighting for lower taxes, less waste and more transparency. In this week's show, the focus is on education. It is the key to a nation's present and future. A highly educated population is one that is more socially cohesive and more economically sound. Yet education standards in this country are dropping dramatically. As measured by international testing, standards of basic skills like literacy and numeracy are dropping dramatically. Yet politicians and bureaucrats are at best paying lip service to the issue. My guest on this podcast is a man who has spent a lifetime in education. Elwyn Poole has just compiled extensive data from all the country's secondary schools, comparing the good with the bad in terms of educational achievement, looking for emerging themes and trying to find ways that the chasm between the top-performing schools and the worst can be narrowed. It seems that no one in authority is prepared to face up to the issues, and that begs the question, why? Is education in New Zealand really putting the interests of our children first? Or are the ideologues at the Ministry of Education and the teacher unions more concerned with pushing their agendas and focusing on self-preservation instead of raising standards of educational achievement? Elwyn Poole on education is coming up soon. Also this week, the political issue du jour, bullying at Parliament. The Taxpayer Talk panel features former Cabinet Minister Morris Williamson, a man who spent 30 years in Parliament as an MP and all upheld something like 18 ministerial portfolios, but he's proud of having the same parliamentary secretary and the same electorate agent for his entire time as an MP. Morris will be joined on the panel by Taxpayer Union co-founder David Farrer, who before he went off to make his fame and fortune in the private sector, was a parliamentary staff member for the National Party. The political panel comes later. We'll also relay to you some of the correspondence we've received this week in relation to last week's interview with author Ewan McQueen and his book One Sun in the Sky, the untold story of sovereignty and the Treaty of Waitangi. Now, if you'd like to get in touch with the podcast, my address is peter at taxpayers.org. .nz. Peter at taxpayers.org.nz. Now, let's talk education. Elwyn Poole has spent a lifetime in education as a teacher, a manager, a researcher. His latest work is a school-by-school summary at the secondary school level of the academic achievement of our 16, 17 and 18-year-olds in NCEA and university entrance. To say there is variation from school to school would be the understatement of the year. The question is, how do we make standards of achievement across the country more consistent? Elwyn, thank you for joining us here on Taxpayer Talk. Uh, Firstly, a little bit about your background. I've said you've been a teacher, a manager and a researcher. In total, how long have you been in the education sector? Uh, Well, I started school in 1971 as a kid. Um, (laughs) Touche. 1991, I I began my teaching career at Taronga Boys College. Right, and you've worked obviously in the state sector, but I think in more recent times you're better known as, what, the founder, uh, certainly a, a manager of the Villa Education Trust, which started schools 
which became known as charter schools, but they actually existed before the charter school concept was introduced, didn't they? Um, our Mount Hobson School did, and so the, the, the short history of that is um, uh, me doing an extraordinary amount of research to look at the New Zealand system, um, what could be, I don't know, a micro-evolution, a revolution at that point to, to begin to change things, and, and writing a model I thought that we could do very well for that age. Um, when the ministry weren't interested, uh, we um, set it up ourselves as a small private school. Uh, it operated, you know, very effectively for a very high percentage of the children who came to us. And then when the National Act Government uh, introduced the charter schools policy or partnership schools, um, we were awarded two of those in consecutive years and um, have set them up. Um, we also do quite a bit of work with sort of other schools advising and and things like that and and it's it's a lifetime you know education is clearly a way that people can earn an income as a teacher and etc um but it's also a lifetime of absolute passion we have many statistics being published regularly these days about our dropping educational achievement standards in the basic things like literacy, numeracy, uh, our scientific achievement at school is also dropping. And it's been a pattern that has gone on for at least 20 years, if not longer. Uh, can you put your finger on one particular reason as to why those standards are dropping? Or are there a myriad of reasons from, say, the attitude of the Ministry of Education, the dominance of teacher unions, just the the attitude of governments, successive governments towards education. Do you find one underlying theme in all that? Um, well, I, I think the first underlying theme is honesty. Um, it's going to sound strange, but um, we have for a long time in New Zealand uh, been very complacent about our education because at some point uh, in our sort of semi-mythical past, we were regarded as as being world-leading. And it's a bit like in my first degree is economics and, and, and people go, well, you know, in, in the 1950s and 60s, New Zealand was one of the leading economies in the world. Well, that was true on the basis or on the back uh, of you know, Europe being so decimated and parts of Asia so decimated that New Zealand just had very open markets that they could send to, et cetera, so develop quickly, which is exactly the right thing to do. Um, but then sort of chose to stand still. And we've really done the same in education because we haven't kept abreast of what's happening year by year. Um, and so you've had this uh effectively rot in the system um going on out of view and in the ministry of education uh are really good at keeping sort of these education issues out of the public eye and i think obviously i think that's a huge mistake um i think in the last uh say 15 years we might have been going downhill a little bit uh, and certainly standing still at best while other countries went flying past us. 
Um, but I think under the last five years, the, the leadership of this government have seen a plunge. And, you know, I to be very honest, I think Minister Hipkins has completely devalued the portfolio, uh, you know, barely spoken to it. Um, yeah, I know yeah, he's had other things on his mind, but the irony in that is that I understand his mother is an educational researcher. So he comes from a family, surely, that would realise the importance of education. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> I mean, you, you've 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 had a glance at least through the data, and there are some really hard calls to make here. Uh, I mean, there are a number of schools that people would regard by reputation as being very good schools, and the data just shows that that's not the case um, at, at present. Uh, there are some schools uh, that have been going along very poorly for now 20, 30 years with no sign of change um, and, and, you know, what should be done. There are brand new $50 million schools that um, have promised the earth and, and at the moment are not delivering. Uh, you know, that's a tough call. And I, I guess at times uh, there are, you know, human beings involved as in, as in adults and teachers. Um, that, um, you know, we, we do treat with kid gloves and um, there needs to be some fairness there, but um, there needs to be some honest calls about the need to improve because schooling is for young people or children and young people. It's not for the adults. Um, and the the complete loss of... I don't like the word talent, um, but let's say developed ability um, that these figures show is, is just devastating. And it's devastating for the children, the families, and ultimately for our society. Um, there is one other thing that I think is absolutely crucial in the background of all of this. And that is, I, I, in many ways, I don't think we're getting parenting right. Um, and uh, I'm interested and, and had long conversations with uh, Nathan Wallace over the last couple of weeks and with Erica Stanford at an event. Uh, Who, who's Nathan had. Wallace, Ellen? So Nathan Wallace does a lot of very high quality uh, teaching uh, about sort of basic neuroscience for families and for children. And, um, you know, we're told by a lot of primary school uh, teachers and principals that the kids are arriving at primary school uh you know in a, in, a, in a bad way in many cases and uh, i mean i think re-emphasizing parenting and becoming the world's best parenting nation would then lead back to new zealand climbing up uh on the overall education stats and that's from the moment a lady uh, discovers she's pregnant and because we know we know what you're supposed to do and you, what you're not supposed to do um but also, a, you know, really pervasive understanding in society about um, the first three years and yeah, the and first thousand days, years. the first thousand days of life. Yeah. yeah. Owen, can we look Correct. at then the data that you've uh, produced on these spreadsheets? And there's lots and lots of numbers, but just having a quick glance through them, would it be fair to yes. say that the most successful schools, secondary schools in New Zealand, in terms of NCEA? Uh, level three achievement or UE achievement would be private 
and Catholic schools. Is that an underlying theme that comes through in your research? Oh, it's a very powerful thing. Uh, and, and as it is taxpayers' talk, they're also the ones that saved the government a, a cartload of money. Um, and, you know, in New Zealand, we have only 4% of our students in private schooling. In Australia, it's 40%. Um, so we have much less choice. Um, but yes, I mean, you end up with, um, there are other schools and in, in, before we came on, you and I were discussing Manakura. Um, you know, Wellington Girls College is, is relatively um, high in that in that list. Um, but you've got to, go, got to go down a long way until you start to get that patterning. Westlake Girls, uh, McLean's College, Rangatoto, um, Epsom Girls, um, you know, you know so I mean, those are some Auckland of the schools that, that do well. Auckland Grammar, I was actually surprised to see Auckland Grammar's only a decile nine school. I would have thought it was decile 10 because of the neighbourhood that it's in, but that's, that's by the by. One school that does stand out as being very successful is a decile one school. I've driven past it on many occasions in uh, Otohuhu, Macaulay High School. Yeah. Now, do you know why they are so successful, and let me look at their numbers here, uh, Macaulay High School getting uh, NCEA Level 3, is it at uh, 87.1? Uh, they're getting UE achievement in the um, in the 65%, nearly 66% uh, last year. Uh, compared to some other Decile 1 schools, that's a very, very good level of achievement. Do you know why Macaulay High School does so well? Well, compared to some decile 10 schools, that's a very good achievement. Um, we, we hosted an event um, actually in Cambridge uh, last week with a, a range of exceptional people. And one of the, uh, or two of the people who came were from the Catholic schools, uh, Karen Fui from most recently St. Paul's, which you'll note is now the number two, decile, number one decile two school in the country um, by these measures. And Karen Fui, who's the principal of St. Peter's in Epsom. Um, he previously was so at St. Peter's, talk, wasn't he? He's now at St. Paul's, isn't he, Karen uh, Fui? Yes, that's correct. And so so um, James is the person who followed him at uh, St. Peter's. And you look at St. Peter's in Epsom and uh, St. Paul's, Macaulay, and, and, and clearly there are others, um, Karen went through uh, a list of 10 things that he felt were important to bring about these sort of achievement levels. Now, um, my sort of uh, past family background, as in two generations back, they almost all went to uh, Catholic schools and unfortunately they'll talk to things like getting wrapped over the knuckles and um, you know, sort of how bleak it was. Um, they've made tremendous strides in working to uh, be far more personable um, and, and to you know keep their standards uh, extremely high. Um, they also talk about the culture of belonging and that when they uh, enroll a student, they actually consider that they enroll a family, um, which is certainly in our schools the perspective that we take and. I'd imagine in many of these very successful schools, that's what they do. Um, and they set really high goals and standards for the kids. 
and the children come up to it. They take a lot of the dead time out of their day um, and have very high expectations with attendance and attention. And those two things go together. Um, I think also, in one sense, uh, an organisation like the Catholic schools is is a bit of a counterculture. Um, and, and I think they're geeing each other up. And um, that's one of the reasons why it's not it's not perfect. I mean, they're not all absolutely amazing, but I think it's one of the reasons why, as a group, they're they're lifting themselves through. Um, but the other thing I'd say about it is it's really hopeful. And when you add in schools like Manukura and you add in some of the you know outstanding uh, state schools that are there, um, it does send a message that this can and should be being done. It's not impossible. And just because someone comes from a decile one background or a, goes to a decile one school, that's not by any means 100% correlated with education failure, not even close. The other contrast that I noticed looking through the data, Elwyn, was yep. that between boys' high schools and girls' high schools in the same town. And I'm looking, I looked at particular at the place where I went to school, Waitaki Boys High School, which has got a Waitaki Girls High right. School in Omaru. Uh, Waitaki Girls High School has got something like 56% of its leavers with UE. The Boys High School, and I was staggered by this, is down to about uh, 17 or 18%. Uh, the, same, uh, the same theme emerges at Christchurch Boys High and Christchurch Girls High, Southland Boys High, Southland Girls High, uh, even at Nelson. Uh, your old school where you began teaching Tauranga boys and Tauranga girls. It's just extraordinary that the contrast between the boys' high schools and the girls' high schools. And I wonder, is there a specific reason for this? Do boys just not try? Do teachers not care about them? Is there no culture inside those boys' high schools that is not lifting achievement? What do you what do you say to those numbers? Well, first of all, I'd say that... Um and I don't know if James Bentley wants all of these visitors. <laughs> I, I, I would say if you're, you're in those situations, he's someone to go and see and just say, hey, what's happened here at St. Peter's over the last 15 years that not only, and I haven't looked up whether they won or not actually, but not only are you now one of the top sporting colleges, but you've kept your academics and in fact advanced your academics. And I was watching a, uh, a documentary on a uh, rugby team of, you didn't mention this particular one, but it's a, it's a very similar situation to the ones that you mentioned. And the um, headmaster was being questioned and uh, said, well, you know, this at the time was a school purported to be New Zealand's best high school rugby team. And she said, well, in year nine, when someone comes along um, and their academic We'll teach them academically and, you know, but in year nine, if someone comes along and they're good at rugby, we'll teach them to be good at rugby. And I just shook my head and thought, no, no, no. You're supposed to do both the same, you know, the, the kid who's academic and all that sort of stuff. Of course you're going to advance that, but you want them to be well-rounded. You want them to be active. You want them to be, you know, into, as you mentioned, culture and, and the, Goodness me, um, you don't just teach a kid how to play rugby. And, and so that school, for instance, is is 43% behind St. Peter's in the uh, UE attainment. And I, I, I honestly just think 
it, it can be as the root of it. It's not as simple to unwind it, but the root of it is that they've they've forgotten what they're there for primarily, and and that's to advance the the set of options that a child has when they leave school. Um, you know, so someone doesn't come out and go, oh, I'm a rugby player. Um, well, even though there are career play. options in rugby and you can be a good player and make lots of money and then you can go on to other yeah. spheres in the rugby industry after that. But if you're focusing on spending a lifetime working in rugby at the age of 14 or 15, your options, I'd suggest, are pretty narrow and therefore it's the job of the school, surely, to insist that uh, boys, um, children... Uh, who are really keen on making a career in professional sport, they are leaving school with lots of other options because the opportunities in sport are not necessarily uh, that uh, that large, are they, compared to other industries? Well, yeah, and I've always, I mean, people, I've done the stats for, you know, and I don't know quite what they are here in New Zealand, but I don't think they'd be too far away. So in the US, uh, where football's large, you know, 4% of high school footballers make it into college and 1% of college footballers make it into the NFL. And a lot of those don't last very long. Um, The other thing is, I mean, I've coached senior men's club rugby up to the Auckland University premier men's team for a few years. And the best rugby players are by and large the smartest rugby players. You know, they are people with a brain, a person you can sit down and have a good conversation with and and talk through and understand a range of things. And, and, and they're more rounded human beings. They don't just go to training and then do PlayStation or, or whatever you do. Um, and I mean, I think Richie McCaw has been a really good example of that uh, in that, you know, post-career, he's just got out and got stuck into a whole lot of different stuff. Um, and he's clearly a, a, a an intelligent man. Well, he was academically gifted, wasn't he? I think he was runner-up to Ducks uh, at Otago Boys High School, Proximo Kesset, and then in his book was very frustrated that he didn't actually achieve Ducks uh, in his uh, seventh form year. (laughs) Uh, So from what you've been... Sorry, Peter. Go ahead. I was just going to say there are different... You are right about the different habitual things uh, for boys and for girls. Uh, you know, the first, I think the first week I was teaching at St. Cuthbert's College after teaching at Tauranga Boys and Hamilton Boys, um, at those schools, because I was involved in, in coaching rugby and athletics and things, as well as teaching, people would, kids would come up and that's what they'd want to talk about. And St. Cuthbert's, I was really taken aback because the girls would come up and say, now about 40 minutes into the period, you explained this part to do with aggregate demand. And I didn't quite understand what you were doing talking about the multiplier effect there. And I'd look around the room and think, are they having me on? <laughs> um, and, and but but there was just this different attitude and approach. Um, and I can tell you a, a horrendous story at one of the schools I was teaching at, where um, and, and to be fair, it was it was twenty years ago. But where uh, the heads of department were asked about their external results. And the head of maths stood up and said, well, our, you know, our external results are solid and we're ahead of the national average and blah, blah. Head of science did the same and, 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 and said the same. The head of English stood up and said, well, we're quite a bit behind the national average, but you must remember we are teaching boys. <laughs> and I was like, what? 
Um, and that's that's pervasive, you know. The and these these kind of soft ideas can have a really big impact over a long time. And a lot of people would say, well, let's drop single sex schools. Let's just have co-ed schools, and therefore boys can get the attention and some of the diligence and attitude from the girls in the class might rub off on the boys. Yet, as you've pointed out with St. Peter's, an all-boys school right across the motorway from Auckland Grammar uh, has achieved Mm -hmm. some of the best results in the country. And, you know, I had a a son who went to St. Peter's for a year in between um, most of his career at Silverstream, uh, St. Pat's Silverstream. But I know when we went to have an interview with Karen Fui, they almost in those days had a, a real little brother uh, atmosphere because of, you know, the big behemoth across the motorway. But yeah. 20 years <laughs> on, that has obviously changed. And you'd suggest it comes down to school leadership and the way that a school wants to feel about itself. Oh, I think school leadership is, is, is ab- absolutely massive. Um, and, and I was so fascinated with Nathan Jury from Manukau talking to us last week uh, for an hour about um, what's taken place. And I mean, the man exudes leadership. Uh, he's he's fairly modest, um, but very well spoken. Knows how to take you on a journey when he's talking to you. Um, I, I met um, a, a few years ago, I was doing some uh, study for some postgraduate work in sport and particularly focused on coaching. And I spent a, a best part of a day with Arthur Lydiard. And, and you know, I <laughs> went home and put on my shoes and went for a run. Uh, and I think that that form of leadership uh, can, to a significant degree, be taught and modelled um, because, I mean, Lydia had produced great coaches as well as great athletes. Um, and, and so I yeah, have to focus on high-quality leadership, and we have to get away from the, the union concept that anyone who has a teacher's registration uh, is of equal value within the system as anyone else. Um, it, it's simply not true. And it holds us back because we we don't go and seek out um, the people that are uh, excelling. Uh, we don't value them highly enough. Um, and unless it's a different situation. So when we set up South Auckland Middle School and, and sort of rumours started to fly that it was going exceedingly well in a, in a very difficult place, we were getting up to 300 visitors a year. Um, and internationally and nationally, and quite often the people who came to us from around New Zealand would tell us to keep it secret. They didn't want the union to know. <laughs> so, yes, well, yeah, the, the the influence of the unions, NZEI and PPTA, uh, in education yeah. in this country has been well. It's always been important. I mean, my parents were both school teachers. They were both against their wishes, I suspect, members of the NZEI because in those days you had to be a member of the uh, primary teachers' right. union. Uh, but it seems that the influence of those unions has become more and more dominant in the classic way they bullied uh, the incoming Labor government to get rid of uh, charter schools in 2017 is just an example of this, uh, isn't it? They, uh, Lockwood Smith at one stage tried to introduce bulk funding into education. The unions beat him down on that and won. 
And can you ever see a time in New Zealand, Elwyn, when the union's influence will wane? How strong a government, how strong an education minister is it going to take to somehow say, no, we're paying for this, we're in charge, not you? Yeah. Um, it, one of the interesting things, so Angela Roberts was head of PPTA. PPTA attempted and succeeded at times in making our life absolutely miserable um, under the partnership schools things. They they published false articles. They, uh, you know, sent press release after press release uh, out and, and things like that. They were just nasty. Uh, and and I'd say, I mean, of, of a teacher's income, if you're worried about cost of living, uh, save on your teacher, save on your union registration fees. Um, the the ministry is a huge problem, um, and again, it's it's that's it's not a, an attack on individuals, although I think there are some individuals there who would be best, uh, you know, retiring at this point or. Um, send 2,000 of them back into teaching because, you know, we've got a teacher shortage and schools are closing down and all sorts of things like that. But um, it's gone from 2,800 people, which is far too many, to 3,900. Um, is that a good use of taxpayer funds? I, mean, I think the short answer is no. Um, I have no idea what they do, uh, and neither does anyone else that I speak to in the sector. And there are very few, so there are some great ministry workers on the front line. Um, you know, people who help in schools and advise in schools with regards to, say, uh, children with needs and things like that. Um, <clears throat> but as a whole, you, you won't hear a lot of positive experiences or uh, a sense of positive contribution. And, and a, a bit the same with the union. So I mentioned Angela Roberts, so she was head of PPTA. And when they were um, giving us a hard time and uh, it came out that, for instance, South Auckland Middle School and Middle School East Auckland and, and one or two of the other partnership schools were doing exceedingly well, she actually said publicly, well, of course they are because they're bulk funded. And, and I, I, <laughs> I just thought, what? Yeah, the lack of, <laughs> of self-awareness in some of these people at times is extraordinary. And, of course, Angela <laughs> Roberts is now a member of parliament, isn't she? She's in the, the Labour caucus. Yes. And and, and Jan Tanetti also was, you know, very um, high up in NZDI. Um, uh, and I, I, mean, I have some respect for Jan. Uh, she was a principal of a, a school in Tauranga uh, in a tough place that she was a huge advocate for. Um, um, and she'll at least have a conversation with you. Chris Hipkins has refused to talk to me for five years. Um, um, so, yes, well, yeah, it's, it's, it's obvious you would like a change of government, but if the new Minister of Education under, say, a National Act government, if in fact that comes to pass at the end of 2023, do you seriously expect any change in attitude? Will they, for instance, be going to the State Services Commission and say, we need a new Secretary of Education because Iona Holstead is just not leading this ministry the way that we want it to. Should there be direct government interference in the way the ministry is run? Should the government start really getting tough on unions and their influence? Should the government be saying to the ministry, this is the way we want to teach reading? Uh, this is the way, these are the things that we want to concentrate on uh, in the classroom, in front of the kids, and not a lot of the 
other stuff which seems to be taking more and more of a of a front seat in in the stuff that kids are, t- are being taught and I'm just um, referring, I guess, to the uh, Tereo Maori discussion, which is going on at the moment, uh, with the possibility that uh, Tikanga Maori and Tereo is going to be a very important aspect, if not an overriding aspect, of teacher training in this country. Yeah, so Tereo Maori is a, I think, in our system, a very worthwhile academic subject that you can take through to being an accredited UE subject. Um, and, and I, I see value and worth in learning a second language. Um, the interesting thing with uh, um, what, for instance, Teachers Council and staff are putting out at the moment is, is, is just the sheer weighting of those things. Um, so Royal Society, uh, under a man called Gavin Martin, did a very good piece of work that the Ministry actually asked for and then has assiduously tried to ignore about how to improve the teaching of math in schools. Um, but there's nothing in what's been put out recently by Teachers' Council saying that, you know, we need to make sure that teachers have upgraded their math uh, ability themselves as, as well as their ability to teach it. And it's one of those subjects, if you don't know it well and you don't understand it well, you can't teach it well at whatever level. Um, same with science, uh, same with sort of deep literacy and, and you're hinting at the way we, we teach reading in the first place. Um, Wendy Pye, for instance, the uh, Dame Wendy Pye, I should say, goodness, I hope you didn't hear that without the Dame, um, uh, is a force of nature who, who is designing amazing resources for teaching early literacy. Um, so I guess the first thing that I would hope uh, our new government, and I would have hoped this from Chris Hipkins, he just hasn't done it, um, is that they would actually lead um, you mentioned the job of Secretary of Education. I mean, it's the one bureaucratic job I'd love. <laughs> and, and, I think um, your chances of getting it, Elwood, are about as high as mine of playing fullback for the All Blacks. <laughs> yeah, you'd be a, you're, you're right. You'd, you'd you'd be a much better flanker. Um, um, but yeah, and we we said this to Eric and to Chris Bailey last week. You know, overtly lead the portfolios if you happen to get them. And and be a be a be a publicly positive force for it, and I, I think that's the secretary's job as well. But I I, I suspect Iona Holstead uh, um, has a very low name recognition in New Zealand society, and 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 what a wonderful job. Um, they need to narrow their focus. I mean, without doubt. And and what will happen here if the trend continues? is that these top, let's call it 50 schools out of this 420, um, will continue to be focused, um, academically dedicated, uh, will continue to thrive and excel, and the schools further down will just become more and more marginalised. Um, that is, that's depressing to hear that, uh, Elwin, really, really depressing because... It's, it, Can it you just, see another it just, at the moment? I can't. I can't unless there is leadership from the uh, the beehive. There is leadership from yep. the ministry. There is leadership and not self interest from the unions, and that there is influence from the parents. I mean that that surely oh, is uh, that, that that that's across the board. That's that's what yep. needs to happen, doesn't it? 
The parents part is huge. Um, I, I think the the ministry part. I'd I'd love them, for instance, to very publicly do what gets called a 360 review, when when you get all of the stakeholders to say uh, how you think you do your job, what they think your job should be, how you can help them, and all that sort of stuff, and make it public, because then that that obliges them to bring about the improvements. Um, you know, for them it, it would be looking in the mirror. Um, it's a very closed shop in in so many ways, and um, you know, at times ag aggressive. Um, and we've got that being uh, investigated by the ombudsman for the way that they've treated us over two recent applications for new schools. Uh, it's an appalling story. I won't, I won't, I won't bore you with it. Um, I did say, and and I and I think this will be accurate that. The teacher unions, if there is a new government, will go very, very hard uh, to get further pay increases. And I think that's because they were pretty much almost duped by Ardern, um, where they, you know, they got their pretty reasonable pay increase. And then, like the rest of the public sector, were told not to ask for anything more for the next three years. Um, so, of course, a lot of those teachers are now, in real terms, because of inflation, earning less than they were when they got the pay rise. Um, and my suggestion would be that they're not going to change their spots. As you said, it's going to be all about self-interest, is be generous and get them out of the way and then get on with the rest of it. Otherwise, it will be a year-long fight. The kids will get, you know, uh, deprived again and just, I don't know, suck up the fact that the unions aren't going to change in that time frame and just deal with them as quickly as possible. Elwyn, thank you for your time this morning here on Taxpayer Talk. And That's okay. I, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I have to say I leave this conversation with not a lot of optimism for the future of education in this country unless we find a modern-day Dr Beebe, we find a modern-day Minister of Education who is prepared to really drive significant change because I don't see it on the horizon. Yeah, can I, can I finish with two or three quick things? Sure. Um, um, one is, uh, I, you know, when, when parents find out this sort of data and information, I, I hear from quite a lot of them, and I will tend to say, hey, look, actually, if you're contacting me for your family situation, um, this data probably shouldn't bother you that much because clearly you're onto it. Um, you understand your role as a parent. Um, if you're dissatisfied with your current school, don't necessarily leave. Go down there and say, hey, look, I'm a bit concerned about some things. What can we do about it? Um, in, in the US particularly, also Britain, a lot of the changes have been generated by parents. Um, and in New Zealand, it's hard for education to get oxygen. So I think it's beholden on parents to care for their child, but also say, hey, you know, I'm going to stick my hand up and say, this has to improve. And as a voter, I'm going to say this has to improve. Um, the second thing is, is, is there is room for optimism because of schools like Macaulay High um, and, and uh, Manukura and, and some others where they're achieving beyond expectations. So let's make that the expectation for the other schools because they show it can be done. 
And and then I guess the third thing is is this attendance problem is appalling, and not many you know they keep putting the figure out of fifty eight percent or or something like that. For decile one schools in term one of this year, so the kids who most need to be in school, it was twenty two percent. And you're right that uh, to me that's the point of despair at the moment. Um, our school system is not good enough. A lot of kids just don't want to go to school. And I think there are solutions for that. But when the select committee had their report into school attendance, only six schools submitted. And that's appalling. The second appalling thing is that they didn't get off their bums and go and find 15 schools where attendance is poor and deeply investigate why, and 15 schools where attendance is good and deeply investigate why. And so the, whatever they put out as their solutions, simply not research-based, so they're not going to work. Elwyn Paul, a pleasure talking to you, and thank you for your time on Taxpayer Talk. Thank you, Peter. This is Taxpayer Talk with me, Peter Williams. Our political panel with David Farrer and Morris Williamson is coming up soon. But first, some correspondence from last week's Taxpayer Talk. It relates to my discussion with the author Ewan McQueen and his book One Sun in the Sky. Kevin O'Connor writes that we didn't appear to cover the 1987 court case well. Uh, This is the famous Lands case in the appeal court brought by the New Zealand's Māori Council against the Attorney-General, whereby the Council challenged the right of the government to sell land to the soon-to-be-formed state-owned enterprises, therefore denying Māori rights to that land for reparation under Treaty of Waitangi claims because the government had to follow the undefined principles of the Treaty of Waitangi. Now, the Council won that case, and the first definitions of treaty principles began to emerge most famously the use of the phrase by Justice Robin Cook, the President of the Court of the Appeal, that the treaty is, quote, akin to a partnership, unquote. Thanks for your note, Kevin. Uh, A few more words then on the concept of treaty partnership. In 2007, one of the appeal court judges on that case, Ivor Richardson, wrote some recollections, and I think these are worthwhile reflecting on today. Justice Richardson wrote 20 years after the case, Quote, that the terms partner and partnership were used perhaps a little too loosely, unquote. He then went on to say that, quote, there is every reason for attributing to both partners, both partners, that obligation to deal with each other and their treaty obligations in good faith, unquote. And then this, which many modern day legislators and activists could do well to remember. Justice Richardson wrote, Regrettably, in some quarters, more was drawn from references in the judgments to partners and partnership as extending somehow to equal sharing than was ever intended by the judges. Unquote. In fact, in another treaty claims case in 1989, the same Justice Robin Cook made the following comments. In the judgments in 1987, This court stressed the concept of partnership. Partnership certainly does not mean that every asset or resource in which Māori have some justifiable claim to share must be divided equally. 
There may be national assets or resources as regards which, even if Maori have some fair claim, other initiatives have still made the greater contribution. Unquote. Think about that for a moment as we consider what the new Water Entities Bill proposes in terms of both the asset ownership and the control over those assets. Thanks for your notes, Kevin. Grant Hadfield also contacted us with the five principles of the Treaty of Waitangi as laid out by the David Longy-led government of 1989, principles which have never been written into law. Grant, I think I know why. It comes from a speech made by the then uh, Labour Minister of Treaty Negotiations, Mark Burton. He made this speech in 2007. He said that, quote, the courts and the Waitangi Tribunal have emphasised that the principles are not set in stone and they may change as the treaty relationship evolves, unquote. And as we look at the New Zealand of 2022, we can say that the comments of Mr Burton 15 years ago were very, very prescient. Those treaty principles have most certainly changed. One wonders how much further they will change and whether any government actually has the courage to write the principles into law so that we have a standard of understanding of what the treaty principles actually are and there is no opportunity for them to be essentially made up as we go along by those with vested interests. Your contributions and comments are most welcome. The address, peter at taxpayers.org.nz. Peter at taxpayers.org.nz. Now let's talk politics and bullying. Labour's Hamilton West MP Gaurav Sharma has made quite spectacular claims in recent times about what he sees as a culture of bullying, not just inside his caucus, but in the parliamentary precinct as a workplace. So who really runs parliament? Who really runs government? And are backbench MPs, especially in a large caucus like the current Labour one, really just there for their votes and not to do much else, especially in their first term? Our Taxpayer Talk political panel this week comprises former Cabinet Minister and 30-year MP Morris Williamson and Taxpayers Union co-founder and a former parliamentary staffer in David Farrah. Morris, have you seen Gaurav Sharma-type behaviour from backbenches and the frustrations in a large National Party caucus as well, I say after the big win in 1990? Yes, I think that would have been the best example of it. We ended up winning seats uh, in 1990 that we had no intention of winning and, in fact, wished we hadn't won <laughs> because there was a few very, what you'd have to call, well, I would say I'd use the word fruit loop, but in the in the day I actually was uh, so lacking in, in uh, diplomacy, I called them dingbats, dipsticks and dorks, and that got to be used by the Labour Party in the Parliament a lot. So we won seats all over the place, and I'm not going to mention some of them, but they were seats that were never on the agenda for winning, but Labour just had fallen into such an abyss. Now, those people knew they weren't going to have their seats in three years' time. Uh, they knew they were a complete dog tucker, and there was no party list stuff in any of this. was all first past the post. 
So they literally were prepared to cut up and say whatever they liked, whenever they liked, and they did, knowing that it was basically good night nurse in three years' time for them. And a few of them went off and formed another party, didn't they, and then went into the uh, political abyss or oblivion, as I seem to remember. Gilbert Miles is a name that comes to mind, I seem to remember. Uh, Yeah, well, I think Muldoon used to call him Miles Gilbert. (laughs) (laughs) David, uh, I I suppose uh, in a caucus of 65 uh, behaviour such as we've seen from Dr Sharma, uh, maybe in some respects it's surprising it's taken this long to emerge. Yeah, to, to a degree. I think what's surprising is that it's been building behind the scenes for 18 months. Normally, if there's an issue, it does tend to get resolved earlier, usually by people realising, look, I always think the analogy is like a cricket game. Until you've scored some runs and shown your value to the team, you're almost just seen as a don't stuff up. We don't want you to say anything. We don't want you to embarrass us. In fact, we used to joke that the main job of a government backbench MP for the first year or two was to move a closure motion, that the motion now be popped. <laughs> um, and there's a bit over the top, but really, you know, Holyoke used to say, breathe through your nose. Simon Bridges disagrees with that, but really it was thought to be just get down, look after your electorate, don't make waves, and then if you know we think you're quite good, you have a chance for promotion down the track. Peter, Peter, David, David's right to an extent, but he's not right depending on what cycle you're in. I can tell you that in 1987, I came in as a brand new backbencher along with several others uh, like uh, Jenny Shipley and Murray McCulley, and our attitude was that the party had so lost its way. Uh, Muldoon had taken it so far to the left with 66 cents in the dollar marginal tax rates and carless days and wage and price freezes and so on that it would have gladdened the heart of any central apparatchik in the Communist Party of Czechoslovakia. So we weren't just going to go in there and say, well, we'll just be quiet and just carry on. And from the very first caucus on, several of us, myself included, made it clear we weren't prepared to tolerate a rerun of some of those dreadful old things for which Roger Douglas had done exceedingly well at the election. Murray McCulley and I were the only two to have won our seat that year, other than some national held seats, because they were split with the social credit. If we hadn't had a social credit split here in Pakaranga, Labour would have won the seat and Labour would have won East Coast Bays because Roger Douglas was so popular with what he was doing. Not Labour, Roger Douglas was so popular with what he was doing. So there was a time in that particular round where backbenchers didn't just breathe through their nose and do as we were told. And in fact, if anything, we were nothing but a a pain in, in the backside. Or when Muldoon was asked after he'd lost the election, was he going to be a burr under the saddle for David Long? He said, not so much a burr as a little prick. <laughs> David, from your experience of working as a parliamentary staffer, though, the the question that maybe many people outside parliament and government don't know the answer to is who really runs parliament and who really runs government? Because even though there's 120 MPs in, in the current caucus, uh, government caucus, there's 65 of them, would it be fair to say that of those 65, most of the decisions, if not all the decisions, are made by a cabal of what, two or three, four perhaps? Four people really decide the direction of the country? Well, firstly, you've got senior staff in the Prime Minister's office can be very, very powerful and influential. 
Um, even me, who was a junior staffer, could just walk into the PM's office with our appointment if the door was open. So you have access, which gives you influence. Well, everyone, including up to the deputy PM, actually has to ring up for an interview. So you tend to have, and Morris will, will have a better perspective on this, but three, four, five senior ministers who are usually called the strategic ministers, the royal right. name you call them, who set a lot of the direction. You know, they, it still has to go to cabinet and caucus, but they have the informal discussions. But the chief of staff to the prime minister, if they do the job well, speaks with the prime minister's authority. And um, I don't think you can understate how influential they were. And you know, if you talk about bullying, I remember... Uh, Jenny Shipley's chief of staff was meeting, in fact, all the candidates at the 1999 election. And he gave them a talk and said, look, I'm a nice, friendly guy. You probably won't even hear from me. But if you start peddling in the wrong direction, you will hear from me and it will not be pleasant. <laughs> the entire room sort of froze with somewhere between horror there. Um yeah, so so you have senior staff in the leader's office, plus a, a share, you know, some senior ministers who set a lot of the direction. Backbench MPs, if you're in government, I absolutely agree with Morris, it's very different in opposition. Uh, but backbench MPs in government, I mean, it's not often cabinet gets rolled by caucus, is it, Morris? No, no. But it's done in, so, it's done in a hierarchical way. If you think about a ship, if you think about a, a massive... Uh, ship. There is the captain and three or four first officers that he will meet with. They will decide on what course they're going to take. The um, communications people will have passed up to them. There's a hurricane out there and there's some rocky waves somewhere. And then they will pass it on to the next operational mark. They'll pass it on down to the engine room and to uh, the and finally, in the end, there'll be guys in there stoking the boiler and turning switches and so on, and the ship just goes in that one direction. Now, somebody down, right down in the bowels of the ship, if he wants to turn the wrong valve and let the bloody flooding waters open up the scuppers and let the he can sink the whole ship. But it's not normal, and David's absolutely right. I've never known unbelievable discipline within caucus when you're in government, and I've never known such ill discipline whenever you're in opposition because it just pisses you off. You can't get anything done and you can't be heard by anybody. And there's no reason to try and hold the line as much. And when you're in government, there is every reason to try to sort it out. So the captain, he's right. The prime minister plus about three or four, we used to call it a kitchen cabinet or a whatever, three or four plus the chief of staff. Wayne Nagelson was always incredibly good as, as John Key's chief of staff. Uh, they would sort out direction of travel, major issues. The next level down would obviously be cabinet committees and ministers taking papers to there, and often you'd have to get permission before you could even put a paper on that agenda. So that was, again, that the hierarchy would have a, a filter. And then when you got that, you would take it to caucus, but you would only canvas it with caucus if you knew you had the numbers uh, otherwise, you'd just have suffer a defeat in the caucus, which didn't happen. So it's very, it's very pyramid. Indeed, indeed. Having the, said that, though, having said that, I I wonder whether in twenty twenty two we have not just in Parliament but in society in general a different definition of bullying, David, to what we might have had 
<laughs> even 20 years ago, certainly 30 years ago. I think we do just as we have a new definition of unsafe. Unsafe used to mean I think so-and-so is going to stab me. <laughs> now it means I think they're going to say something I disagree with. And Ooh. I think bullying can get overused. Certainly look, there is bullying in Parliament sometimes. You've had MP staffers reduced to tears. I've known an MP to throw things at people. But so that's bullying. But just saying, I think this is a stupid idea, we're not going to do it, isn't bullying. Uh, if there's been a stuff up in the office and you weren't prepared for question time because your staff made a mistake, telling the staff, you know, this was not acceptable, we cannot let this happen again, I do not think it's bullying. So I do think the term is overused, but I don't think uh, that means there is no bullying at all. What about David, the, the role of the whips? Right the role of the whips here, Morris. Let, let me just say how much that's yeah. changed. Yeah, thirty. Well, it's actually thirty-five years or more. When I first went in there, uh, not, none of today's uh, expressions and woke. Uh, you mustn't be this, and then and a human resources man will come and and you need to. None of that existed. You know, you either did the job or someone gave you the boot, and uh, they didn't even give you three weeks pay. You just get the hell out of here. You're useless. And so the world has changed, and I accept that's the same in the commercial world, etc. But you just cannot have a world where you cannot bring somebody in who you've set a task with a whole kit of milestones and measurables and said, I need this done, I need this done by next Monday, that's got to go up to the cabinet, and when you come in on the Monday, it hasn't been done. If you can't say to them, this is unacceptable, you were given a very clear steer, and you agreed to doing this job, and now you haven't even begun it, and it sounds to me from what Sharma was saying, he was setting a whole set of tasks to be done, and they just weren't being done, uh, you've got a right to say that. That is not bullying. That is basically asking for, you know, standards of performance that everybody in the business world would be seeking. David, looking back, do you think then under 2022 definitions, you may have or may not have been bullied during your time in Parliament? <laughs> uh, no, I was. Actually, it's really interesting because, look, as a staffer, you you generally you know, try to just get on and do a good job, but um, occasionally... MPs would go to the leader and complain about something. But actually, the leader usually didn't even bother to come and tell me about it. He would just play, or she, play damage control and say, oh, yeah, that's fine, etc. So as a staffer, I, uh, I never felt bullied in any way at all. Um, and I've seen, look, in some ministerial offices, you can have ministers who their staff absolutely love and are devoted to them, but also the minister, when it gets stressful, can lash out at them because, you know, their career is going to finish if they actually don't fix this, etc. So it is a tense, it is a stressful relationship in these offices, but good ministers will end the day making sure, you know, the staff feel happy and valued. All right, Morris, just to finish, I've got to ask you, did you ever bully? Were you ever accused of bullying? Did you ever see no. it? And I'll tell you why I can say no. Uh, I've never had a PG personal grievance of any sort taken against me or booted up. I started in Parliament uh, in 1987 with a secretary called Bridie Wilkinson, who <laughs> David Farrow will know. And I said in my valedictory speech that I worked for Bridie Wilkinson for 30 years. 
she was amazing. She made sure everything, the, the trains ran on time. If she had been running the trains in Germany, they would have run on time just by her. And I had the same electorate agent here in the Pakaranga electorate for 30 years, Carla, Carla. Nicholson. Carla was here the entire 30 years. Um, if anything, they bullied me about my lack of being somewhere where I needed to be or whatever. Uh, probably under the day's, uh, under the day's rules, I could take a case against them for actually they were brilliant. And I had one secretary in Wellington and one in Auckland for the whole 30 years. There are members of parliament that David will be able to recount to you that had three in their first year and some had seven over the first three years while they were there. So no, I didn't, I didn't have any. And I, I learned it in New Zealand one thing, which I'd really want to just quickly get away with. We were taught at a management conference once that the best way to get that sort of understanding with your staff member when they're not performing is not to confront them with a, you're bloody hopeless, you're not doing the job and I'm sick of it. But to say, you know, how are you going? How are you finding it? Are there areas of concern? And just chatting it through for a few minutes and eventually most people know when they're doing a bad job and most people will almost start to spill their own uh, guts about it and say, yeah, well, I'm struggling with uh, doing the following. Okay, is there help or whatever? I ended up with some staff that I talked through that and in the end they basically more or less said, I don't feel I'm suited, suited to do this. And I said, okay, well, it might be best we try to see if you can move to something else. If you do it confrontationally, it's almost right. I'm here for the fight. This is going to go here and it'll just be nasty. It'll be lawyers. It'll be whatever. And I learned that really early at Air New Zealand. And so I did 30 years and not a one single PG against me. But I can tell you there are caucus members that have got more PGs than I had hot meals. Very good. Morris Williamson and David Farrer on the Taxpayer Talk political panel this week. Thank you. Pleasure. And that's it for this edition of Taxpayer Talk. My thanks to Elwyn Poole, Morris Williamson and David Farrer. If you'd like to get in touch, my address is peter at taxpayers.org.nz. Peter at taxpayers.org.nz. I'd love to hear from you and I look forward to you joining me for the next edition of Taxpayer Talk. Taxpayer Talk.